This is the Historian's Podcast, and I'm Bob Cudmore. This episode features interviews with authors at the recent Autumn Leaves Chronicle Book Fair held in Glens Falls. About 120 authors attended the annual event, sponsored by The Chronicle, the arts and entertainment weekly in upstate New York's North Country. This is Bob Cutmore, and we're at the Chronicle Book Fair, an annual event in Glens Falls, and hope to be talking during this edition of the Historian's Podcast with uh, some of the history writers who are here. Well, lo and behold, Tara Heim Norman is here, author of the book The Vindication of Lewis Roach. Well, thank you, Bob. It, it really deals with a miscarriage of justice, uh, a 1913 murder in Palatine Bridge uh, uh, occurred, um, and the person who was executed and tried and executed for the crime, I believe, was totally innocent. And so the more I got into the story, the more it got a hold of me, and I had to do something, and so I eventually wrote a book. Tara Norman wrote the book The Vindication of Lewis Roach. Roach was a hired hand in the town of Palatine in Montgomery County, and in Norman's view, he was wrongfully accused and executed for murder in the early years of the 20th century. And uh, through all the complicated uh, occurrences that happened, uh, there was a, a, a resident of that area that was determined to get a reward that was rather substantial and had developed the case on his own and his own theory, and the, really the authorities uh, fell for it. And um, Lewis was was targeted because they felt that they could get to someone else through Lewis. And, of course, they ended up, the only suspect they had was Lewis. Um, and so he was, but he, he, he actually went to the electric chair less than two years after the crime. And you were from uh, the Mohawk Valley originally, but have spent most of your life in Florida. How did you get into uh, writing history? Well, I was doing genealogy, and I, I've always loved history. I've always enjoyed reading history. Um, I'm a retired city clerk, um, but I was doing genealogy and came across a news article that said someone had shot through my grandparents' bedroom window and just missed them, and I thought, well, I'd never heard about that, so I did some more research, and of course, that occurred when my dad was a year old, so he wouldn't remember it either, and uh, and I, I just I tripped over this story, and the more research I did, which is really a lot of it on FultonHistory.com, uh, the more I realized that this this was something I just needed to get into. That's an interesting point. FultonHistory.com is this website where this uh, gentleman, Tom Trunisky, has has uh, digitized you know thousands, millions, I guess, pages of uh, of newspapers. Yes, it's tremendous. It's searchable, and of course, it c- he continues to expand it. And then when I first started using it, I believe it was really pretty localized to New York State. But now there's newspapers from all over the country. He just keeps adding them. It's, just, it's an amazing website. We continue at the Chronicle Book Fair, and I'm talking now with the Stan C.N. Ferrano, and I believe you represent the Warren County Historical Society. Uh, it's, uh, history is an important topic, and that's our interest here on the Historian's Podcast. What brings you to the book fair? Well, the Historical Society has a small bookstore, and we sell a variety of topics, titles, and uh, we're here to try to get history out into the community. Well, I see you have a bunch of books in front of you. Have you are you the author of any of them? Um, I'm the author of one chapter in the county history book. That's it for this group. It's called Warren County, New York. What was your chapter about? Mine was the uh, preserva- historic preservation and 
projection to the future. Warren County, when I think of it, you know, coming from more in the direct capital district, I think of it as a, a more or less rural place, but is that not true anymore? No, that's true. Whereas there's uh, pockets of population around the Glens Falls and Queensbury, Chestertown, but then you get out into the rural part of the county, yes. Now, you mentioned that of the books that are here, you did one chapter. Have you done another book? I almost got that sense when you, the way you answered that. Uh, no, I haven't. No, I've, I've edited some books, and th- but not written my own yet. Of the books that are here, what, what's uh, uh, the most popular one? Or what do people want to read when they read about Warren County and the Adirondacks? Well, this book, Backward Glances, uh, a gentleman named Howard Mason wrote a, a weekly column for the newspaper about his experiences, his life, and uh, he, they, he published it, self-published it in three volumes. We had the opportunity to con- put it into one volume, and that seems to be the most popular right now. Um, and it's a, it's a, an interesting look at life in the 30s, 40s, and 50s here in the county. I find the area I write about, that's what people are interested in. Well, Stan Cianferrano of the Warren County Historical Society, thanks for joining us. Have a good day. Jim Labatt is here at the Chronicle Book Fair in Glens Falls, who writes about Amsterdam, specifically in the Mohawk Valley and other things. Uh, good to see you, Jim. Good to see you as well, Bob. How are you doing today? I'm doing well. What is it about our hometown that um, gets people interested? I've heard you explaining some of your stories, like uh, Mickey Mantle Day in Amsterdam, and Let's Go Gales uh, and, the, oh, and the things I threw in the river to people. It was a wonderful place to grow up in the 50s and 60s. I just have such fond memories of the people I met and the experiences I had there. And so it's just fun, I guess, to relive that through my writing. And, well, is it specific to Amsterdam in terms of the people who read your books or, or not really because you uh, deal with kind of universal themes? Yeah, I was about to use that word myself, universal. I think just our experiences are somewhat universal in terms of growing up with lots of families and kids nearby and just going through school and just meeting new people, sharing great experiences with sports and activities. And you write about the Mohawk River, at least in, in one book. It's a powerful, uh, real thing, and it's a powerful metaphor, isn't it? Yeah, there's something about a river, I think, just kind of moving through your community that just reminds you of the, the cycles of life, I guess you'd say. I'm not really sure how to express it at the moment, but it's just a, it's just a neat place. And I'm sure you've been there recently, the new pedestrian bridge oh, over yeah. the Mohawk. It's beautiful. Yeah. Just a very wonderful place to just sit and reflect and enjoy God's creation. It is. Well, and, and I mentioned a couple of your books. Uh, can you just uh, finish the list if I left something out and tell us just a little bit about yourself? Well, my first book was uh, Let's Go Gales, about uh, an experience in seventh grade. And then Mickey Mantle Day in Amsterdam, which was about the same time period, a fictional piece, of course. Uh, and then I'm, So those two were young adult novels, and my last two are more for general audiences, Things I Threw in the River, which you alluded to. And then my teacher's password is more about a college student at a you know, local school and a dilemma that he faced. So. And you, you work in a local school, right? Yes, I teach at Hudson Valley Community College in Troy, working in the writing center and teaching uh, writing courses as well. So it's great to just be with young people every day, and they keep me young. We're continuing at the Chronicle Book Fair up in Glens Falls, and Herb Hyde joins us. Herb, uh, you're from Troy, and I believe you write about the, the past? Yeah. Well, actually, I'm from Cahosna, but I, I grew up in Troy. 
So um, when I retired, I started writing about my, my youth in Troy, um, what it was like in the 40s and 50s in Troy. Came from a family of 10 kids, dirt poor. And um, the beauty of my writing my first book was that I was able to reconnect with 10 kids that I grew up with. Hadn't seen them in 50 years. So yeah, all these little, these little tales that I was telling, I, I wanted to make sure they were correct. So we all got together one day, and uh, like you're doing a recording now, I did a recording of them. Uh, five of them at one time and the next day I went to turn the tape on I couldn't understand a word because everybody was talking all over each other <laughs> it was kind of hilarious but uh, I find it very rewarding to write uh, about what it was like back in that era it's a very important era in this country that's long forgotten so I continue to write um, I live in Cohoes now I'm working on a book on Cohoes uh, it's the third part of the trilogy that I wrote. My second book was about my high school years in Troy it was called my first book was College in Eighth my second book was Herbie, a Troy youth coming of age, sort of. It was about my high school years as a, as a dorky little kid in high school. And then um, the, the book I'm working on now is called uh, Uncle John's Diner, which was an iconic little diner in Cohoes where I used to go when I got my first job at the shirt factory over there. At the what factory? At the shirt factory, Troy District Shirt Company in Cohoes. Uh, we used to make uh, shirts for J.C. Penney, uh, 1,500 stores that we had, and that, that's going out of business now. So hopefully this story is going to begin in Uncle John's Diner and it's going to end in Uncle John's Diner. And everything that goes on in between will be my story about Cahoe. So now, are, are these sort of historical fiction in a way or do you do embellish it or no? They're embellished memoirs, I call them. They're, they're, every story that I write has a, a nugget of truth in it. There's something happened that was true. Uh, the characters that I've met in my life are larger than life. It's amazing how many people that we've met in life that are, are kind of larger in life. And you'll find out, especially in College and Eighth, the characters that I grew up with, everybody, I changed the names to protect the uh, innocent and humorless. Uh, but it became kind of a challenge when I came out with the book. Everybody's trying to figure out, was this this fella or was this that fella, you know? And uh, that was part of the charm of the whole thing. And, and hopefully it'll be the same in this book. But. I was just uh, speaking with uh, the man who's also at your table. I mean, we share tables, Jim Labatt, who I've known for some time. And he writes about Amsterdam, which is where I'm from and this you know similar situation he writes works of fiction based on his experiences and others but one thing that is similar between Amsterdam and Troy is a river runs through it yes, definitely you have the uh, Hudson River in Troy and in Cahoes you have a river that runs through it the Mohawk which you're quite familiar with too and I live right directly across from the Cahoes Falls have the best view of the Cahoes Falls in the whole capital district every morning I look out my front window and, and see it <laughs> And that's a very historical site also. You know, the indigenous people in this country, it's a sacred site for them. So, yeah, we have a lot in common. Plus, we're both mill towns. All three of them were mill towns. You know, jobs have gone away and life has changed. And, uh, and we look at what we're at, at at this point in time. And you have to kind of look back and reflect on what happened before to see how we can improve upon it. Herb, thank you very much. Oh, it's been a pleasure, Bob. Nice meeting you. Here at the Historians Podcast, we depend on you, our listeners, to help us pay for production expenses. You can donate online at gofundme.com forward slash historians2016. Or you can send a check made out to Bob Cudmore to 125 Horseman Drive, Scotia, New York, 12302. Thank you. At the Chronicle Book Fair, Brian Bouillet is uh, with us uh, from the uh, Saratoga 
uh, Museum of Racing History. I know I've not given the correct name for it, but he's also author of a, a book about Jim Morrissey, which has become uh, quite a good seller. How's it going? Well, John Morrissey. Jim Morrissey John. was the doors. Uh, it's going very well. He's uh, got a lot of pull in this area, obviously, because of starting Saratoga Racecourse and uh, being from Troy and the boxing legacy he had. So it's a lot of fun to be here today and talk a lot of the uh, the history around it. And, and as you say, it's John uh, Morrissey. Uh, it's really remarkable that a man with with so many I don't know varied talents if you will uh, got involved in uh, in the racing at Saratoga yeah he was a guy who uh, I kind of look at him as a 19th century sort of Rocky Balboa guy who kind of brought him up brought himself up from nothing and uh very intelligent businessman, got involved in casino gambling, he was a fighter, he was a politician, so a uh, very diverse guy, yep, absolutely. And at the National Museum of Racing, I believe is what it's called, uh, that, that's really the repository for a, a lot of history about uh, racing, not only in Saratoga. Yep, we are the National Museum and the National Hall of Fame. Uh, we opened in 1950, and uh, we, we cover the sport from, from California to New York and Kentucky and everywhere in between, so uh, we got a lot of great exhibits about the history of the sport and uh, everything that's going on in the sport today. I know that you, I believe, still have an exhibit on the Sanford family from my native Amsterdam. That is correct. It's called the Sanford Legacy. It's actually up through the end of the year. It's a two-year exhibit chronicling that family's importance in, in thoroughbred racing history. Um, you know, they won everything from the Kentucky Derby to the uh, uh, the Grand National over in England. And just uh, throughout the 20th century, they're one of the most important stud farms in America. Well, Brian, thank you very much. Thanks for having me. We continue with the Chronicle Book Fair talking with Sandra Weber, uh, who has a table with a number of uh, books, including one about a woman named Inez Mulholland. Who was she? Inez was a part-time resident of the Adirondacks. Her father, John Mulholland, came back to his family farm in Lewis uh, and built a big uh, house there, and they lived there in the summer. It's now called the Meadow Mount School of Music. You may have heard of it. Okay. And Inez is buried in the Lewis Cemetery nearby. And she is featured in two of my books. One is Breaking Trail, Remarkable Women of the Adirondacks, and Inez is one of the women that we wrote about for that book as a remarkable woman because she was featured as the herald in many of the suffrage parades in Washington, D.C. and New York City, and she dressed in white with this white cape and a star on her head, and she was called the Joan of Arc and the most beautiful suffragette and all kinds of, of things. But tragically, she was campaigning for uh, women to get the right to vote, and she went on this long campaign tour out west. And eventually, in Los Angeles, she collapsed while she was on stage. She was so exhausted. And one of the last things she said uh, was directed at President Woodrow Wilson, and she said, Mr. President, how long must women wait for liberty? And then she collapsed, and she actually died a few months later at the age of 30. My goodness. So she kind of became a martyr for the cause? Exactly. She is really the martyr of the women's suffrage movement. And so in my new book, which is about the portrait monument of Lucretia Ma, Elizabeth Cady Stanton, and Susan B. Anthony, it's in the rotunda of the U.S. Capitol now. But Inez also played a part in that statue because there was a ceremony held there in honor of Inez. And so Inez became the icon, the inspiration in the years after her death for the National Women's Party. 
And uh, we're talking with Sandra Weber. Uh, tell us again about uh, your books uh, that you've, you've written. Well, my first books started out being about Adirondack Mountains. I wrote about the history of Esther Mountain and then the history of Heart Lake and Mount Joe, which that book I called The Finest Square Mile. Then I tackled the big one, Mount Marcy. Ah, have you climbed all these? I have climbed all of these, and I am a 46er. And uh, Mount, but Mount Marcy's uh, very special, and I had a, a lot of fun discovering the history of Mount Marcy, especially the women associated with it. And so that got me interested in Adirondack women, and so I paired up with uh, my friend and wonderful folk singer Peggy Lynn, and we wrote Breaking Trail about some women in the Adirondacks, and Peggy has songs about the women. I then um, paired up with Carl Heilman, the photographer, and he took photos as I went hiking through the high peaks with my daughter, who was then 11 years old. And we went on a mother-daughter backpacking trip through the high peaks for 11 days, and Carl carried all of his equipment in and out every day to meet us to take photos of us. Yeah, and so that became Two in the Wilderness, uh, a wonderful kind of uh, picture, storybook, diary of our adventure. And you live in the Adirondacks? I live here full-time now. I was a part-time resident for a while, but now I'm full-time and I'm loving it. We continue at the Chronicle Book Fair, and we're talking with uh, Ben Kemp. Uh, and Ben Kemp is uh, with the Grant Cottage in Wilton, New York. Uh, tell, us, tell us this uh, story. Why is General Grant associated with this cottage? Uh, after he was a general and then later a U.S. president, uh, he was at the end of his life. He had invested heavily in a uh, Wall Street firm, and unfortunately, he had lost all his money. And <clears throat> he was suffering also from uh, throat cancer at the very end. And there were, they were living in New York City, the family. And but they had a friend that lived up here in in, in Wilton and had a summer home in in Saratoga and on this mountain in Mount McGregor, and which was a resort at the time in the late 1880s. And so when he found out about Grant's condition, they brought him up to the mountain for the fresh mountain air because he was very sick at that time and trying to finish his memoirs uh, so that he could provide for the family and their financial situation. So that's what really brought him up there. Grant had visited Saratoga many times, but he had never gone up to Mount McGregor nearby. Um, so this was the first time he went up there. And unfortunately, he survived only a short time but it's just an amazing story of dedication to his family to will himself to live those final weeks um, to be able to complete those memoirs and take care of his family financially. And, and he did complete them and he did die at the cottage. Yes, and that's how you really can tell how dedicated he was to his family. Uh, obviously, he showed dedication to his country his entire life. He, he accomplished a lot for our country. But at the very end, he was focused on his family. And he was able to finish them three days before he passed. He finished the book, and the doctors really believe that he willed himself to live those final weeks in his condition. Um, and just an amazing story of courage and, and love for his family. Um, and what makes the museum very unique is the owner of the cottage that invited him up there, the friend, his name was Joseph Drexel, actually decided that it would become a museum. And so it's been a museum for 130 years. Is it a government installation or no? It, it is owned by the state of New York right now, and it's run by a nonprofit, the Friends of Grant Cottage, uh, whom I'm a staff member of. But we run with an excellent 
crew of volunteers for our docents, for our tour, tour guides. And this is a little uh, aside, and I don't mean to catch you off guard with this, but I'm from the general area, alas, I've never visited the Grant Cottage, but uh, a friend of mine who's involved in local history writes a column, Dan Weaver, uh, for the Amsterdam Recorder, uh, wrote a column recently which he said some Montgomery County guys, you know, from you know the Amsterdam area, let's say, or Fonda and so forth, were involved in trying to de- to get Grant up there and... And I got the impression that they they were moved by um, humanitarian interests, but also you know for, you know for finance because they were hoping that the fact that Grant was going to go there would uh, make it a very profitable uh, vacation destination. The Arkells uh, were a, a wealthy family, um, industrious family out of the uh, Amst- yeah Canada-Johari area, and they were the you know they were the ones that uh, along with Drexel were were interested in helping Grant out in his situation. But the younger of the of the Arkells, W. J. Arkell, William J. Arkell, was actually the um, uh, kind of really the guy on the ground running the big resort up there at the time on Mount McGregor. Now he did have, uh, there is there is definitely some uh, evidence that he did ha- desire that to have Grant there also to bring some notoriety to the location and help his business up there. Um, there was also a train that serviced the mountain which, which was also supposed to be a money maker as well. What Arkell later stated mm-hmm. was that uh, yes we brought him up there, yes we helped the family out by you know pay- paying for the bills, but having him up there did nothing good for this resort, is what he said. In fact, people come here and they treat it as a shrine. They come up, they walk around on tiptoes, they don't come to my restaurant, they don't come to my uh, hotel, and then they go back down on the train they came from. So he did, wasn't making any money because people were coming for a different reason, almost like a cemetery. Uh, but <clears throat> but he, it, 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 certainly many, many more people came to the mountain. They just weren't frequenting his hotel. Um, and it did burn down before the turn of the century. Um, but he had sold off before then, sold off his interest uh, before it burned. Um, but it's, it's a fascinating story. And uh, uh, the Arkells uh, made their fortune. An interesting story there is they made their fortune by uh, uh, creating the uh, paper bag in the, in, the, in the Civil War. So that's also another interesting story. But they were heavily involved, the Arkells. Uh, were heavily involved with what happened on Mount McGregor and helping, you know, the Grant family while they were there. Continuing at the Chronicle uh, Book Fair, we're talking with William Griffith IV, who was author of the Battle of Lake George, England's first triumph in the French and Indian War. Can you tell us about the battle? Yes, well, the Battle of Lake George was fought September 8, 1755, and in my opinion, it is one of the most significant military engagements of America's early colonial history. Uh, The battle for the British was their first victory during the French and Indian War and it secured a presence at the southern end of Lake George, part of the major water highway north towards Canada. Uh, This battle then led to the construction of Fort William Henry, which of course was besieged by the French two years later and burned to the ground. But this fight itself was quintessentially one of the first American military victories in our history. The force that defeated the French at the southern end of the lake was made up entirely of New England troops and New Yorkers, with only one British regular officer present. So this was really one of the first American military victories. Apparent in a moment, but this for me is an embarrassing question. Was Sir William Johnson involved in this? Yes, Sir William Johnson commanded the provincial force 
that defeated the French there. However, he was wounded early in the fighting, and command for the majority of the battle fell to Connecticut General Phineas Lyman. I know that he became a sir having to do with his action in this war. Was it this action or other things? Yes, it was William Johnson's victory at the Battle of Lake George that did secure him this knighthood. Um, in my opinion, though, that honor should have been bestowed upon others. Well, certainly Sir, Sir William's a local favorite where I come from, which is the uh, Fort Johnson area, or Amsterdam, Johnstown, Gloversville. But let me ask you um, about yourself. Um, what, what, how did you get interested in, in history? All right, well, I'm originally from central New Jersey, and when I was younger, uh, even since before I was born, my family always vacationed in the Lake George area. Uh, Fort William Henry was the first ever historic site that I was taken to as a child. And um, I don't know, I just it, I've always felt a connection to this area up here. This is one of those rare areas in the United States where you go to and you kind of feel transported back. You could feel the history around you. Um, so I was always interested in the colonial history up here. And I found out just trying to do more research on the Battle of Lake George that there wasn't really anything out there. I mean, it's mentioned in general histories, regional histories up here, but there's no single study really focusing on it. So that was kind of inspiration. Uh, for me to write this book as well. Thanks to Kathy Deedy for organizing the Chronicle Book Fair. Authors we didn't get to talk with included Matthew Roselle, who wrote two books about World War II, A Train Near Magdeburg, and The Things Our Fathers Saw. John Briggs was there, a popular author of children's books, including the picture book Leaping Lemmings. We wrap up our audio tour of this year's book fair with short chats with the waterfall man, Russell Dunn, and Adirondacks author, Larry Gooley. Russell Dunn is at the Chronicle Book Fair. How are you doing, Russell? I'm doing very good, thank you. I associate you with your book on the uh, Great Sacandaga. Is that still a good seller for you? It is. I, uh, I uh, revised and illustrated it in 2012, so it's a much bigger, more comprehensive book now with pictures, and people love pictures. Oh, they do. And I guess because I live at that general end of the lake, I was always interested in you wrote about the Italian gardens abroad Albany. Yes, they're, they're still there in part, but it goes back to um, a socialite, and uh, her name right this second eludes me, Kitty, uh, Kitty somebody. Uh, but anyhow, it's, it was a marvelous place in its time, and I have a lot of postcards. That's how I knew about it. Found Larry Gooley, always a popular fixture here at the Chronicle Book Fair, author of many books about the Adirondacks. People are probably always asking this, Larry, but what's new? Well, new as far as books is uh, Volume 7 of our People and Places of the Adirondacks and Foothills series. So we just came out with that this past week, and um, I'm currently working on the bootlegging book, which that's going to be fantastic. Coverage from Rouse's Point all the way to Cape Vincent and the Adirondacks and Foothills. So the comprehensive story of what bootlegging was really like in the North Country back then. Wow. That sounds very interesting, of course. And a little bit that I've done on that for the area I write about, the Mohawk Valley, they, they, they bring it in in cars and sometimes by airplane. I remember they, they had a little airfield near Amsterdam that supposedly the bootleggers would land at. Yeah, that's true, actually. And I had the advantage of being from up north. I grew up within a mile of the Canadian border, so I actually knew some of the booze runners back then. And there was really a, um, a system where the people up north knew the roads, and they would smuggle the booze across the border, usually to a distribution point. And then from there, 
some of the major bootleggers would distribute it further south to Glens Falls, Warrensburg, Saranac Lake, and all the cities in central New York. And then it kept spreading further south to New York City. So really, every step of the way, there was a different way to smuggle, and people were doing it at all different levels. Why are people so interested in the Adirondacks? Well, for me, just the beauty. When I The beauty, I fell in love when I first could see the mountains, and um, I've always been interested in the history of it, and it really is fascinating, all the things that you learn about when you look into the old books. We've been doing a lot of historical reprints, books that are no longer in print, so we reproduce these, and it's so interesting because I have to read them, and I have to take the time to read them, and I learn so much more about the men who were here early on in the uh, 1800s. You've been listening to The Historian's Podcast, Recorded at the 2016 Chronicle Book Fair in Glens Falls, New York, I'm Bob Cudmore.